This is the weekend edition of the Code Report. Hello and welcome to the Core Report Weekend Edition. I'm Govind Rajethi Raj. We're going to talk about uh, China plus one and China minus one. Unusual as it sounds, bear with me. My guest for today is <laughs> Louis Vincent Gave. Uh, Louis Vincent is the founding partner and chief executive officer of Gavical or Gavical Research. He co-founded the company in 1999 with his father Charles and Anatol Kaletsky. Uh, Gavical started as an independent research firm. It evolved in 2005 to include fund management and in 2008 to include data analysis services. Louis used to work uh, with uh, Paribas Capital Markets earlier, but more interestingly, and I wish I get some time to talk about it, he worked uh, or rather served in the French Mountain Infantry Division as a second lieutenant. Uh, but he's also studied economics, history and Chinese at uh, Duke University and Nanjing University. Uh, Louis, thank you very much for joining us. Give our listeners and viewers a background. You're based mostly in Hong Kong, but you're presently uh, in uh, Vancouver. But you are a French citizen. That's correct. I'm, I'm very French. Very French. Let me come to the context of what I'm going to talk to you about. So China plus one and China minus one. The context in the China plus one is about how we particularly sitting in India and if maybe in other parts of Asia as well, are seeing a lot of manufacturing opportunities moving out. I mean, for geopolitical reasons, for cost reasons and so on. That also presumes to some extent that China is facing a lot of troubles which it will not be able to get out of. Some of them, particularly post the opening of COVID, seem to be almost moving in one direction. You know that China is very clear it is not going to pull back the reins, so to speak. Uh, it's going to allow its housing crisis to get worse, all of which may cause other economic problems, which makes it an opportunity for other parts of the world, including in India. So that's the plus one. The minus one in some ways, is really the flight of capital. I'm using figures now from uh, reports on Bloomberg. Foreign holdings of equities and debt have fallen by almost $188 billion or 17% from a December 21 peak. To quote uh, an analyst, Zikai Chen, uh, head of Asia and global emerging markets equities at Louis, your alma mater, that's BNP Paribas, he says uh, <laughs> foreigners are just throwing in the towel. Uh, this was just last week. The MSCI China index is down 7% uh, in 23. The MSCI Emerging Market Index is up 3% at the same time. So this is just to give a context that there is an opportunity on one end, there's flight of capital in China happening. So how do we read it here? Sitting here, a lot of this comes through Western media. Is Western media playing it the way it should play it? And are we uh, reading the right signals or are we misinterpreting the signals? I mean, that's really the other part of the question. So what's really going on in China and are we reading it rightly? Or are we over-interpreting some things? So you've laid it out very well. And I think the challenge always in China is it's such a big country that you can pick at any string and make up whatever story you want to make up. So that, that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is I think when you look at the Western media, increasingly, you know, they've had to change their business model with the, with the internet. And most media have moved away from being sources of information to being really deployers of narrative. And today there is no doubt that the narrative is, oh my God, China's collapsing. You've seen it on the cover of The Economist, you've seen it on the cover of Business Week, you've seen it on many Wall Street Journal articles. And yes, it begs the question, is this the reality or is this just, just a narrative game? Now, I'll start off with your China plus one, because um, I think it's very important for your listeners to, to realize this. Today, the perception is indeed that the factories are leaving China to go to India, to go to Vietnam, to go to Indonesia. And there is no doubt that this is happening. There is absolutely no doubt. And this is happening mostly, I would say, with industries at the 
at the lower end of the spectrum. Think textiles, think plastic toys, etc. Meanwhile, what is interesting, what nobody talks about, is if you go back six years ago when President Trump was beating the drum on how China's trade surplus was too big, beating the drum on how China was competing unfairly with too undervalued an RMB, etc. Back then, China's trade surplus was roughly 30 billion US dollars a month. Now, we've had these factories leave. We've had the trade war against China. Guess what China's trade surplus is today, six years later? China's trade surplus is now 80 billion US a month. So it's more than doubled. It's almost tripled. So when we talk, you know, China plus one, let's keep this in mind. Because what's happened really in the past six years is that you've seen China massively move up the value chain in terms of its exports. Six years ago, China was exporting cotton t-shirts and plastic toys. Today, out of nowhere, China is the biggest car exporter in the world. China is the biggest solar panel exporter in the world. China is the biggest battery exporter in the world. China is moving to be the biggest earth-moving equipment and telecom switch equipment. So yes, factories are moving into Vietnam, into Indonesia, into India. But so far, to be honest, this is like crumbs off China's table. You know, China's trade surplus has still gone from 30 billion to 80 billion. It's crumbs off China's table, which, you know, if you're Vietnam, if you're Indonesia, you can feast off these crumbs. This is great news for you. Meanwhile, China's moved from selling plastic toys to cars, um, where there's a lot more value added. And electric vehicles, yeah. So this is the factory part of it. Tell us about the capital flows. I mean, the numbers don't lie, or at least I hope so. We've seen huge capital flight from China, and more so in the last six months ago, which seems to be caused also by a political sort of situation in China itself. Yeah, you know, about the numbers not lying, I remember what Benjamin Disraeli said, you, you tortured lo- the data long enough and it will confess. You can take numbers and twist them one way or the other. Now, to your point, there is no doubt that you know, foreign capital has fled out of China. And it's fled, I think, for, for a number of reasons. First, China did itself no favors with the continued lockdowns, the crackdown on Hong Kong, et cetera. So that was one part of the equation. But you know, the bigger part of the equation is, of course, the rising geopolitical tensions. And most of the data that has fled China is, by and large, Western capital. It is you know, capital from Euro- U.S. institutions, European institutions. Meanwhile, what's interesting is if you look at uh, data, money coming in from, say, the Middle East, that's growing very, very quickly. Now, I think what's happened, indeed, is most managers of liquid assets, think bonds, think equities, have decided the political risk of being in China is too high. So I, I have to redeploy my capital elsewhere. And I think India has been a massive beneficiary of this. Uh, I mean, the Indian markets in general. We can debate whether it's a beneficiary or not because of, you know, it's not really foreign direct investment inflows. It's just hot money coming in, driving up stock prices. If it comes back out next year for whatever reason, whether that will have been a big advantage to India is perhaps neither here nor there. What you get for now is a big wealth effect at the, at the very least. But when it comes to, uh, to China, for me, the bigger question that we should be asking ourselves is right now China's running trade surpluses of 75, 80, 85 billion a month every month. That's a lot of money. If you take China's total trade surplus right now, it's on a par of a trillion dollars a year. So you have to think of it as China is basically sucking in a trillion from the rest of the world. To put things in perspective, if China's trade surplus was the GDP of a country, it would be in the G20. Like China's trade surplus is as big as 
the GDP of any country except the, the top 20 countries in the world. So this is massive in terms of flows. The question we should be asking ourselves is, where's that money going? In the past, we knew it went, it was recycled back into US treasuries. Now we know this isn't happening anymore. So is it going to go into gold? Is it going to go to be redeployed in capital spending outside of China, you know, in Africa, across Southeast Asia, across Central Asia? A little bit of both. Is it going in oil inventories? I think there's a lot of signs that this is happening. So it's, um, I think right now people, look, you know, you, you, you quoted Bloomberg. Bloomberg's role in the world is to tell people what's happening in financial markets. So they interview people who work in financial markets to tell them what's happening in financial markets at this precise moment. And there's no doubt that what's happening in financial markets is that people are leaving China. And I think that that's mostly done now, like Westerners have, have mostly left. But there's a whole bigger picture in terms of global capital flows. You know, what's happening to trade flows? What's happening to the recycling of trade surpluses? These numbers are massive. And to me, that's a more interesting conversation because we know that foreign flows into equities, foreign flows into bonds, that's always sort of hot money coming in, coming out. Right. Okay. So I'm going to come back to the capital flows in a moment. The other interesting word you used, if I got that right, was it's not de-globalization, but de-signization. De-signification. Can you dwell on that? The reality is that the big buzzword for the past four or five years has been deglobalization. Oh, we want to reshore, we want to bring uh, production back home, et cetera. But when you look through the data, what you see it is, is really none of that. Um, the factories that used to be in China haven't moved back to Detroit or Frankfurt. They've moved to Mexico, they've moved to Vietnam, they've moved to, to India or Indonesia. And global trade has actually continued to expand. And the fastest pass of global trade, and incidentally, is emerging market to emerging market trade. Uh, that's growing gangbusters. Um, and that brings me to my next point. What, what's quite interesting is, I think when most people think of deglobalization, they think, okay, Apple is going to shut down its factories in China and open up new factories in India. The way things work, though, is somewhat different. Um, a lot of the, this de-signification, because again, deglobalization isn't the right word, is driven by Chinese entrepreneurs themselves. If you're a Chinese entrepreneur today, you think, hold on, do I want to build my next factory in Hongzhou or in Shenzhen when I see those geopolitical tensions unfolding? Maybe I'm better off opening it in Saigon. Maybe I'm better off opening it in Juarez in, in Mexico. And that is what's happening. I have a colleague, Tom Miller, who wrote a series of papers last year going around the maquilladoras of, of Mexico. And to his big surprise, so many of them are now Chinese-owned. And interviewing the Chinese managers of these businesses, they said, well, look, at this point, the workers in Mexico are basically the same price as the workers in China. And you know they're just as hardworking. And we're obviously much closer to our end markets of the United States, and we don't have any political risk in producing here. So you know, in most people's conceptualization of deglobalization, it's American multinationals deciding to move abroad but the reality on the ground is actually much more complex. Which links to the next point or theme, which is de-dollarization. And you talked about the, the South-South trade, which is growing or expanding quite rapidly. It's a favorite theme in India as well. I mean, the banking regulator has put out a paper on de-dollarization. There is discussion. Uh, and of course, there are skeptics, including me to some extent, because I feel that we, are, uh, we shouldn't jump the gun here, uh, even in thought. How do you see it? Well, so first, de-dollarization is a very loaded word. 
and it means very different things to different people. The first point I'd make is, is de-dollarization. You know, most people want to see a date or a specific event. Let's say the, the recent BRICS summit, everybody got very excited. The reality is de-dollarization, it's a process that can go more slowly or more, or more quickly, but it's a process. And the reality today is that we are living in a world where a growing percentage of South-South trade is now occurring in currencies other than the US dollar. And I think you have really two massive events that have contributed to this. The first, of course, is the Russia-Ukraine war. The Western world decided to kick Russia off the US dollar system for violating international law and invading Ukraine. And the direct consequence of this was that Russia had no choice but to start selling its commodities in other people's currencies. So selling commodities in rupees and in US dollars, et cetera. Now, if you're India, for you, that's a game changer. It's an absolute game changer because India has always run trade deficits, always run budget deficits, and always had basically unlimited infrastructure spending needs. You know, India needs to build railways, ports, roads, power plants, you name it. The constraint was always, how can we fund this in a world where all the commodities we need to buy are priced in US dollars? If tomorrow we can't get our hands on US dollars, the dollar funding market shuts down or if the price of oil shoots up, our economy implodes. And here comes Russia and say, hey, you can buy oil from me in rupees. So now all of a sudden, if you're India, your biggest constraint to growth disappears. So I think it's not a coincidence that today ISM surveys are below 50 in Europe, below 50 in the US, below 50 in China, all announcing recessions, while in India or in places like Indonesia, Latin America, Middle East, et cetera, the ISM surveys are at record highs. You know, India, like latest reading, record high, which unprecedented divergence with the rest of the world. And that is all linked to the fact that the biggest constraint to growth, which is for India, which is, was always accessing US dollars, has just abated massively. So that's your, your first massive shift in the de-dollarization trade. The second massive shift, which I think people massively underestimate, goes back to what I was saying about how China's moved up the value chain in terms of exporting cars, earth-moving equipment, solar panels, telecom switches, et cetera. Because China now comes to you and says, hey, India, you used to buy Caterpillar machines for 100. You can now buy long-haul machineries for 60 instead of 100. And I can give you credit through ICBC, through China construction banks, or whoever, communications bank, whoever. I'll give you credit for it. And that means that if you're an Indian company, all of a sudden, your working capital needs have collapsed. Because instead of having one supplier with one source of funding, you now have two suppliers with two sources of funding. So your need to keep precautionary savings just collapses. So China's rapid industrialization and the fact that it's now turning to the rest of the emerging markets and saying, hey guys, I can help you industrialize on the cheap and on credit means that the need for dollars collapses. Um, and so I think those two things are really driving de-dollarization today. I see what you're saying. I mean, and I think the part about, uh, you know, funding in cheap in Africa or parts of Asia, even the Pacific Islands. And we've seen some interesting examples, but also of those examples going sour. So is that something that could continue? Maybe the glory days are already over. Well, going south, I no, I yes, of course, you've had bad loans along the way. Absolutely. But... If you're China, I think you're first and foremost a mercantilist country. So you might say, okay, yes, we've, we've had some bad loans along the way, but 
it's okay. Our trade surplus is 80 billion a month. And again, that pays for a lot of broken pots. So vendor financing, trade financing is a risky business. There's no doubt about it. Every now and then you, you get huge blowups. You saw this in the 1970s, the US vendor and trade finance Latin America. And then the 1970s, early 80s, Latin America blew up and then almost blew up the US banking system. You know, they had to do the Brady bonds, the government had to intervene, et cetera. We saw it in Europe, Germany to a large extent, trade and vendor finance, Greece, Spain, Portugal, you know, sold them a bunch of BMWs and Mercedes and told them, it's okay, you'll pay us back later. And then when the Greeks said, actually, we won't, I mean, we're not going to pay you back later, that almost blew up the euro. And so there are big risks to this. So this is what China is doing right now. You know, it's lending money to the Sri Lankas of this world, lending money to the Pakistans, lending money to the Burmas, to the Indonesias, to the Thailand, and saying, it's okay, you can pay us back later. You could say, oh my God, I've seen this movie time and again. The reality is we're just at the beginning of this movie. And I agree with you that eventually it might blow up, but the numbers relative to the Chinese economy are still small enough. And more importantly, the numbers relative to the size of the Chinese trade surplus are still small enough that we're still very far from the part where this blows up the Chinese system. We're in the first inning of this. It, this has just started. Um, this is like saying, if you were saying in 1999, 2000, when the euro really got going, saying, oh my God, Greece is going to blow up. It's taking on too much debt. You were eventually right, but you were wrong by 12 years, which in financial markets means you were wrong. You know, uh, obviously there's a real estate problem in China. And depending on who you ask, the figure that I have is that there's developer debt of almost $1.9 trillion at risk. 13 trillion RMB. 13 trillion RMB, yeah. yeah. That's the problem. Now, depending on, again, who you read or who you ask, either Xi Jinping is uh, running it cold or running it hot. So we don't know. Is China in control here? And therefore, is, is are things playing out the way we're seeing it? Or have they lost control and therefore are things playing out the way we see it? And all of this, obviously, the addendum to that question is, does it impact how things could evolve or play out in terms of how global trade and global capital flows will go at least after the next six months or in the next year? So I don't know who's saying he's running it hot because he's not running it hot. <laughs> uh, no, no, look, he's been trying to crack down on Chinese property developers for the past five years and he's successfully done so. I don't think that the problems that Chinese real estate is facing today is a bug. I think it's the feature that, that that's what they were aiming for. And it was both because they wanted to curtail speculation in property, uh, number one, and number two, because it's a way for them to regain control over local authorities that were getting too much power by being able to fund themselves through selling land, et cetera. Now, you're absolutely right. You know, the numbers I have is that there's 13 trillion RMB losses, uh, or potential losses of exposure to property developers and the Chinese banking system. To put things in context, though, and that's a huge number, you know, that's a very big number, but to put things in context, that's 6% of total outstanding bank loans. And conceptually, that's problematic because banks obviously run a, a leveraged uh, business model. Having said that, it's also a, a, a number of 6% that's small enough that you can exercise some kind of regulatory forbearance, sort of sweep it under the rug and work it out over four or five years of bank margins, which is how China's always dealt with banking problems in the past. So here, you know, what's, what's interesting to me is everybody has spent the whole summer worrying about this Chinese issue. And, you know, people called me up and clients and we discuss it. And I always said, look, why do you worry about this? What's the trade here? How does this impact your portfolio? 
And I think deep down what the reality is, most people look at this and think, oh my God, I've seen this movie before. This is 2008 all over again. You know, you've got falling real estate prices, property developers in trouble, shadow banks going bust, and everybody's got PTSD from, from 2008. So everybody, you know, harks back to this. The reality is the Chinese financial system is completely different than the US financial system. So everybody's running around saying, oh my God, this is China's Lehman moment. No, it is not. Um, this isn't to say that there's no problem, but you can't use the same template. It just isn't. And the best example of this, the best illustration of this is the fact that if you look at Chinese bank shares, they're actually flat for the past 12 months. Now, if you look at US bank shares, from January 1st, 2007 to July 2008, i.e. two months before Lehman went bust, they were already down 60%. And then Lehman went bust and they fell another 50%. So China is confronting a real estate problem that will hamper growth for the coming years, but it's not really hampering Chinese banks' ability to lend. And against that, you have parts of the economy that are doing fine. What all this means is you have weaker growth in China for the foreseeable future, but then you come back to what you do about it in portfolios. It's, okay, maybe you go long Chinese government bonds because bond yields are going to continue to come down, and I agree with that. Do you want to go short a currency that's running an $80 billion a month trade surplus with the currency now two standard deviation undervalued? I don't think so. Do you short the Chinese stock market? I think that's a pretty courageous trade to put on given how cheap it is. And given that the government is now trying to crank it up. So you look at all this, you, you torture your mind like, oh my God, this is massive. And it's like, how does this impact my portfolio? I'm not sure it does. Speaking of portfolios, so let me bring you to present times, as it were. So uh, two things that have happened recently. One is Wall Street stocks have fallen because there's fear that interest rates will rise uh, again, or there's been a hint that they will rise. And the second is oil, which is now heading to $100 a barrel and surely above 95. Putting that as the backdrop, how are you seeing uh, two, three things? One is uh, capital flows in general. Secondly, emerging markets and the role of interest rates and oil. Well, to be honest, I think your, your fact number two, oil going up, is one of the key drivers of your fact number one, markets going down. Yes, markets are going down. Yes, interest rates are, are higher. When you look through history, you find that whenever you have mortgage rates that go up more than 200 basis points over 12 months, which is, you know, we've just had, and I'm talking about the US here, plus oil prices that go up more than 30% year on year, that's a tough combination. So personally, I don't really worry when I see oil prices going up in a vacuum and interest rates not following. And I don't really worry when I see interest rates go up in a vacuum and oil not following. But when you have the two of them, it's like a one-two punch. I think most people, most businesses, most consumers are strong enough on their feet that they can take one punch. But if you take two punches, the risk is you're going to get knocked out. And that's what we're going through right now. You have rising interest rates plus rising oil prices. And that's a very, very tough combination. You can look back through history. It's a tough combination for, for markets to withstand. And I would say it's, it's an all the more tough combination for markets to withstand that markets today are not really priced cheaply. Like it'd be one thing if markets were super, super, you know, the stock market was trading at a 10 times PE, I'd be like, you know what, just ride it, wear the pain. And by the way, that is the case in a lot of emerging markets, not India. A lot of uh, emerging markets, the equity markets are priced very cheaply. But again, you look at uh, the US today, you look at an Apple trading at 30 times earnings when sales and profits really haven't grown for the past four or five years. All Apple's been doing is gearing up the balance sheet to buy back stock. 
And that's one thing in an environment where oil is at 50 bucks and interest rates are at 2%. It's a completely different can of worms when mortgage rates are at seven and oil's in 95. Now, my big fear is that oil prices continue to go up. Uh, they continue to go up because for the past decade, we've massively malinvested in our entire energy infrastructure. You know, we, we've made a big bet that we'd pour money into wind and solar and that that would deliver tremendous productivity gains and cheap energy for, for the foreseeable future. And the reality is it hasn't. We've poured $4 trillion, uh, with a T, US dollar, and I say we, I mean the Western world, $4 trillion into wind and solar. And for that, we've moved our carbon use from 83% to 81%. So it's like, it hasn't moved the needle. And this is the part of the market that I think people, while everybody's focusing on China, oh my God, the Chinese real estate bubble is imploding, et cetera. You have a bubble right now that's imploding, and that's the bubble on alternative energy. Go look at your share prices of your wind, of your solar, et cetera. It's all imploding. The bubble on alternative energy is collapsing in front of our very eyes out of the realization that these guys overpromised and underdelivered. And we're left with you know, 4 trillion capital misallocation that we have to digest. And the way we're going to digest this, unfortunately, is through higher energy prices for the foreseeable future. Right. So how are you advising your clients on asset allocation? Asset uh, could be geography as well. Uh, and the second is, you were telling me that you were in India quite recently, last month, actually. What have you taken away? And I mean, if, if there's good news on investments, what are the kind of areas that you're looking at? I'll start with the India and then I'll, I'll work my way to the asset allocation. So I hadn't been to India for like since pre-COVID. So there had been like five years that I'd last gone to India. And there's no doubt that in those five years, India's roads have gotten better, very nice airports. The whole myth that, oh my God, India can't build infrastructure, I think is, is collapsing in front of our eyes. India has gotten a lot better on that front. And I think that's part of the re-rating you're seeing in, in Indian assets today. When you go there, it, it's hard not to feel a, you know, an enthusiasm for the, for the future, a sense of belief that India is going places, and a certain sense of optimism. So that is there. And obviously, you know, foreign investors are massively overweight India on the back of it, which is perhaps the one vulnerability I would say that, that India has right now, is I think you've had a lot of hot money coming in, partly leaving China, going to India. So that means that India in itself is sort of somewhat dependent on the news cycle. If for whatever reason you get, you know, some bad news, as far as foreign investors are concerned, and, I'm, and I don't want to get involved in Indian politics, but as far as foreign investors are concerned, they put up a lot of this success down to Modi's administration. And so that there's a feeling that, oh my God, if Modi doesn't get reelected, the market will tank, et cetera. There is that sort of Damocles sword, the, maybe a, today a higher political risk because of all this foreign inflow of hot money. To your point on asset allocation, I think that the starting point of any asset allocation today is the acknowledgement and the realization that we are no longer in a deflationary environment. For a lot of the reasons we discussed today, but we are now in a structurally inflationary environment. And in an inflationary environment, asset allocation becomes much more complicated. You know, portfolio construction in a deflationary environment is easy. You buy 60% equity, 40% OECD government bonds, and you can go to, to the beach. You know that if ever there's a shock to the system, you know, whatever stock you bought that you might like, it might be Reliance or it might be Microsoft, or it might be LVMH or Alibaba. If there's a shock, your US treasuries will, uh, will take the hit for you. Well, fast forward to today, and for the past three years, US treasuries have not done that job. 
past few days again being a proof of that. You know, past few days, S&P is down one, one and a half a day, and U.S. bonds are down 2% a day, uh, long-dated treasuries. So bonds no longer diversify equity risk. And so that means that you have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, you know, I still like my equities. I still like my Alibaba. I still like my Microsoft. What do I do to diversify away from that? Now, I know in India, the default mode is gold. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll buy gold. The problem with gold is it's a highly volatile asset class. I happen to like gold, to, to be very clear, but adding gold to your portfolio seldom reduces the volatility of your portfolio. So I think you can have some gold for sure, but you probably need something else as well. And as we just discussed, the big risk on portfolios today is that energy prices continue to go up. So for me, the ultimate portfolio diversification today is no longer bonds, it's actually energy positions. And that could be energy companies, that could be long-dated futures on oil prices. Uh, you know, it could be any, any one of many things. But um, I think any portfolio that does not have a substantial energy position right now is cruising for a bruising. Hey, uh, Louis, we've run out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.